electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly Evans once again. It has certainly been a big week of Fed speakers dominating the headlines, and we're not quite done yet. Fed Governor Chris Waller speaking right now at the Council on Foreign Relations. Steve Leishman is there. Let us get straight to him for the headlines. Steve. Brian, thanks very much. Fed Governor Chris Waller will say that monetary policy should continue to tighten. However, He currently favors right now a 25 basis point increase at the Fed's next meeting, which, as you know, happens at the end of this month, and the announcement comes on the 1st of February. He says the Fed still has a considerable way to go to get to its 2% inflation goal. He expects to uh, support continued tightening of monetary policy even after is the implication this upcoming meeting. Economic activity says it's holding up well with the fourth quarter GDP around 2%, but he notes that it's slowing, and he expects that economic slowing to continue. That's part of his forecast. He says there's ample evidence that the Fed's rate increases have dampened demand and economic activity. You've got the slowing of business activity. He says that is consistent with the Fed's goal. But he does point out the goal is not to halt economic activity, just to slow it and moderate it. He sees consumer spending has begun to slow as well, and he expects it to moderate further this year. He expects the economic slowing to continue. He sees continued strength in the labor market, but again, there are some signs that both labor demand and wages are indeed moderating. That labor market strength shows up. It shows that income and jobs can hold up despite higher Federal Reserve rates, but he does need to see continued improvement in labor costs. On inflation, he says it's good news, recent declines in inflation, quote, but I'm still cautious. Core inflation, he says, has moved sideways. The Fed does not want to be head fake. That's why he's really staying the course, Brian. Okay, and this kind of goes to what we talked about extensively yesterday, Steve. Is there any mention of pausing, let's wait and see? It sounds like he's kind of got his views already set. Brian, you um, are the king of word search. You introduced word search to CNBC. I invite you to do a word search of Waller's um, speech and look for the word pause. And I'll give you 20 bucks for every time that word comes up because it doesn't come up at all. There is no That's not a good deal for me. That's not a good deal for me. <laughs> look, you buy the beers and I'll drink them. That's the deal I'd like to offer you. Um, the deal is this, Brian. He's, uh, he's still... Going forward, it would appear on uh, another quarter point and maybe probably one after that, which is how the market is priced. And then it's the, you know, it's five, get to five, get high, get and hold. That's the idea of the Fed Reserve right there. Well, so you're going to be doing, and I want to give our viewers an update on what's going to happen because it's a little bit unusual for live programming. You're going to go into a room. You're going to do a sit down. So you are going to do a Q&A and then we're going to tap into it a little bit and then you'll come back on, I think, and talk more about it. But either way, we'll see part of that conversation you're obviously not going to give Just away everything because his, his handlers are probably watching this interview. But can you give us directionally where you want to go with this? 
I'll give you the first question, Brian, because it's the conversation that you and I have been having, having on CNBC is that can he explain the gap between the way the market views where the Fed is going and where the Fed says the Fed is going? And that gap is 70 basis points. It's rather high. It's three quarters of a percentage point. I'd like to hear how he explains that why the market is wrong and his outlook is right. There you go. We'll let you get in. We'll let you do that. And we are going to tap into it live and show part of that Q&A. Steve, thank you. See, see you later, Mr. Sullivan. All right, so like we said, we are going to dip into that Q&A a little bit there and come back out and talk more about it. But right now, let us get to your money because stocks right now, they're up. In fact, technology having a pretty good day. And though it looks like we'll have a down week, overall a pretty good year. The Nasdaq's up nearly 5%. Let's dig in a little bit more. Dominic Chu is like 10 feet away over it the is. plasma. Hi. It's like 15, maybe even 20. But it's we're a, close. It's a league. Exactly. It's a fathom. Yes, we'll go, we'll go that way. Uh, anyway, Brian, so if you talk about the markets overall, uh, with those comments from Fed Governor Christopher Waller, we are still seeing stocks right now just about near session highs. The S&P 500 up about 35, 36 points. To give you an idea of where we are at the highs of the session earlier on, it was 39 points. So very much just towards the higher end of that range. We were actually down just one measly point on the S&P at the lows of the session. The Dow Industrial is up about one third of 1%, 113 points, 33,157. The Nasdaq Composite up one and a half percent, the real outperformer there because of some of that tech strength due in part to some of the big names, especially Netflix coming out. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. The Nasdaq Composite up 165 points, 11,017. One place to keep a close eye on is the recent rally that we've had in precious metals. Now, gold and silver specifically, if you take a look at those particular names, you can see over the right-hand side of the screen here, since the lows that we saw in the fall, gold prices are up a very respectable 19-some percent in that time span. But look at the orange line. Since the lows that we saw in the fall, it's up double that amount, close to 40 percent. So gold and silver catching a bid. Some dollar weakness may play into some of that story as dollars get weaker. It makes those commodities somewhat more attractive, relatively cheaper on that kind of a basis. So we'll watch that. And then speaking of tech, media and telecom, a big part of that outperformance, like I pointed out, is Netflix today in the composite. But it's also what's happening here with Alphabet shares up 4 percent right now. That's a big move for a trillion plus dollar company. All of this is happening, sadly enough, on a massive amount of job cuts, about 12,000 people losing their jobs there, 6% of their workforce. But investors are saying this could show some cost discipline. They're bidding up the shares of Alphabet right now. So keep an eye on what's happening there, Bri. I'll send things back over. Thank you very much, Dom Chu. Appreciate that. All right, Dom, by the way, come on over. Alphabet, speaking of tech, is just the latest tech name to reduce headcount. Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, all cutting tens of thousands of jobs in the past year. And while this is obviously bad news for the folks losing their jobs, nobody wants to see that, companies are being forced to adjust their cost structure to deal with leaner economic times ahead, which means the stocks may get a break after a rough 2022. Let's bring in Kim Forrest, Boca Capital Partners CIO. Dom is here once again. You know, I, I do hate these kind of stories, Kim, where it's like, oh, the stocks go up because people lose their job. I mean, that just sucks for the people losing their job. Pardon my French. Um, but listen, we're investors. That's what we do. We look at the companies and they're probably going to have to cut costs. Sure. Well, um, Silicon Valley is never shy about hiring people and spending money, uh, regardless of if they have the cash flow to support it. And it's interesting that these larger, older companies have really started to um, lead, I guess, the world of technology into restraint, or so it seems. And that's why they're up. Investors like to see companies that know they're owned by shareholders and concentrate on things like 
what products they're going to come out with to make their customers happy and drive cash flow and do that in an economical way. And I think especially in the last couple of years when uh, growth was so big at all of these companies, they just didn't give a thought to maybe adding that extra person to a team. And if we look at these companies, we tend to lump them in. I know they're in all the same baskets, Dom. Like, you know, they're on all the ETF. We say technology. But, you know, these are different companies, man. I mean, what Google is an advertising company. Meta is, I don't know what Meta is. A metaverse company? It's a goggle company. I'm not really sure what it is. Apple's a hardware company. Yeah, so they're totally different, right? So we look at these. Amazon is basically a, a retailer with a giant cloud business attached to it. How do we look at these companies differently? In terms of the overall business that, that, that we're talking about here, Kim kind of nailed it. It's about whether or not there was an over, uh, over-hiring, I guess is the best way to put it, during certain parts over the last couple of years. And, and, and there was a reason why, by the way, because there was so much more focus and tilt towards things like technology, IT hardware for sure, services around kind of remote work, hybrid work, and that sort of thing. That, that kind of gave you a tailwind. The, the problem was it, that tailwind faded quicker than I think a lot of other companies mm. anticipated it would. And for that reason, they're reacting a little bit more uh, profoundly in this way. Now, the reason why it's a little bit more significant this time around is because if you look at the way things are shaping up right now, it, it was this cascade effect. You, you showed that the board about all these people laying people off. But it's almost become a norm right now. And you almost have to because you've been given license by your peer companies to cut costs and investors are going to kind of treat it the same way. So that's going to be a a real rub is whether or not these companies will all follow suit, not just these mega cap tech ones, but other tech ones as well. Kim? Sure. I think there's a good chance that other companies will cut um, their staffs. Whenever investors are looking at companies, especially if they're private, they are comparing them to public companies. And if public companies are getting skinny, the private ones are going to have to get skinny, too. Yeah, the question is how much more skinny will they be and how much more would the market reward them getting skinnier? Again, we hate to see the, anybody losing their job, but at the same time, they seem to be telling us a pretty big story about where they see either the economy going or, to Dom's point, they messed up. Everybody's like, we're going to work remotely forever, and now we realize, no, we're not. Yeah. Oh, I think that's the bigger part of the story is what are they going to do with the teams that they have? And I'm thinking that they are not only right sizing, remember that term from the 90s, but they are also skill narrowing, that they are going into the areas and keeping the people and maybe even, I know this is crazy, maybe even hiring additional people on those projects that they think they need to, you know, present in the next five years. So it wouldn't surprise me that the mix at these companies is going to look very different in the next five years. And the teams are either going to be completely gone in products that they no longer want to offer and support. And the ones, you know, that that's what they do. That's what we pay companies to do is move us into the future in the most, um, you know, uh, responsible way, I suppose. Okay, so so as, as a kind of add on to that conversation, if you take a look at the way things stack up in our economy, very tilted towards services, which is kind of what tech, media and telecom does. They're either either in the business of services or supporting services. 
that's the issue now is when you start to see headcount coming out of those places, it maybe signals something about the broader economy. Now, what I would say is it's been pointed out to me a number of times by, by either sources of ours or people in social media that are saying the place that we are not seeing people getting cut right now are in industrial, in manufacturing, travel and leisure and hospitality, other places in the economy that are just not tech-specific. So well, you well, can't this, find anybody. Well, but that, so that's what I'm saying. If so you, you can find me an HVAC installer, I'm paying him or, or her plumber, whatever they want. A or plumber? an electrician. Do me or a favor. Or a carpenter or Don't, a guy who does drywall. I, I know exactly you what you're You probably can do about. it yourself. I can't. I need a plumber. I've had a busted sink. For six months, I can't get anybody to come over. I just had copper line replaced by a professional in our house for our refrigerator, and it cost a lot of money. So I, this is what I'm saying, though. Yeah, but there's you wear parts, pocket squares. You part, there's, there's, yeah. <laughs> there are parts of the economy that are stronger than others. Technology yeah. is maybe isolated right now Quick, where the job Kim, are. one pick. Very 10 seconds for us. Opportunity Friday. Sure. This is going to be a big eye roll, I know. But how about Intel? And I'm looking far into the future. I think they can become a fab. I think they're going to have many um, uh, sites around the world. And I think they have the money and the talent to pull it off. And a giant backing for the federal government with the CHIPS Act and some other thing. There you go, Kim Forrest. Appreciate it, Dom. Thank you. Good luck with that new copper line. And the Niners this weekend. That's it. Minus three. I'm nervous. All right. Let's move on. Speaking of costs, let's turn our focus to the impact that the Federal Reserve may have on American families and their personal balance sheets, because there really are two things happening at the same time, which could end up being a toxic combination. First, millions of Americans are saving less money than at any time in years. The personal savings rate has collapsed for the COVID stimulus highs. That's that big pop. But you could see the savings rate is now also below pre-COVID levels. In other words, People are spending and they're not saving, which, by the way, is understandable, particularly if you lived in an area where the economy was shut down for long periods of time. Who can blame you? Now, this is the total amount of so-called revolving credit outstanding in America. Majority of that is credit card debt. You can see that is not only going up, it's at a record high and it's approaching one trillion dollars. And as the Federal Reserve raises rates, rates on that debt also are likely to go up, sometimes by a lot. The average annual interest rate in a credit card in America is now 19.9%. That's up from 16.3% last year. And that could rise even more, which is actually quite inflationary on its own. Here's why. Using the bankrate.com calculator, if you owe $8,000 on a credit card at 16% interest, you will ultimately pay $10,100 to pay that card off, or about $2,100 in interest. But That same $8,000 balance at 20% will be $4,700 in interest, more than double in just interest cost. That is inflationary. Let's talk more about it with Greg McBride, Chief Financial Analyst of the aforementioned Bankrate.com. Appreciate the good calculator because I could have never done that math myself. But this seems worrying, Greg. Credit card balances at record highs, rates on the rise. That's how's that? That can't be good. It's not good, Brian, and it's reversing the trend that we had seen during the pandemic where when we were all at home and we weren't out spending money, we saw people boosting savings and paying down credit card debt. But with the surge in inflation, particularly in the last 12 months, we've really seen a big change. Uh, You've mentioned that 
the savings rate, the lowest since 2005, but savings balances themselves are increasingly declining as people are leaning against it to kind of bridge that gap where income stops and expenses keep going. And of course, credit card debt, the other side of that, there are households that are no doubt having to use that credit card uh, for necessities just because income hasn't kept up. And, and Discovery yesterday saying their charge-off rate did rise, still 2.5%, so it's nothing to be screaming about right now, but it did basically double from earlier. I, I was actually talking about this around the dinner table last night because that's the kind of family we have. And my wife said, well, what if people just don't pay it? And it's not inflationary. I thought that's a good point. Some people might say, I'm not going to, you know what? I'm not going to do it. They're raising my rates. It's, it's predatory. I don't care. I'm not going to pay the loan. Well, if you listen to bank earnings calls, you'll notice that they're putting more and more aside in loan loss reserves. So, you know, looking at the outlook for a weaker economy, they know that delinquencies are going to rise. They know that charge offs are going to rise. And so you're seeing them already starting to increase reserves uh, to reflect what they see as as an eventuality on some level. I know there are max caps on APRs, annual percentage, you know, interest rates that credit cards can charge. But the three percent, three and a half percent move has been significant. Do you see it going much higher? Are we going to go over 20% on an average rate? I think we will, because credit card rates move in lockstep with the Fed. So uh, if you have a card right now that's at a rate of 19.5%, and the Fed ends up raising rates another half percentage point, well, that gets you to 20%. So my advice, don't take this sitting down. Grab one of those low-rate balance transfer offers out there. We see 0% for as long as 21 months. Greg, still a big world. Stick, really sorry, sorry to interrupt. Stick around. We're going to come back to you after this, but we, we want to dip into Steve Leesman starting his Q&A with Fed Governor Chris Waller. Rates ought to be in what you ought to do at the Federal Reserve. The gap between the market and the Fed for the end of 2020 is 70 basis points, which is towards the high side of where you guys were concerned with that gap back in July. So there's really two questions that come off of it. What do you think explains the different attitude of the market towards the same data that you just laid out? And secondly, um, is that a problem for the Fed in the execution of monetary policy? So if you look at the market's perception of the terminal rate, it's not far from where we think it is. So it's not the peak. That's maybe a hike difference. That's not a big deal, to be absolutely honest. But as Steve mentioned, the market has a much more rapid decline in the policy rate this year than we project. Excuse me. And I think that's driven by one key thing. The market has a very optimistic view that inflation is just going to melt away. The immaculate disinflation is going to occur. Inflation is just going to come down very rapidly. And once that happens, there's no reason for the Fed to keep policy rates high and they'll start cutting rates. We have a different view. Inflation is not going to just miraculously melt away. It's going to be a slower harder slog to get inflation down, and therefore we have to keep rates higher for longer and not start cutting rates by the end of the year. The other issue that we have to deal with at the market zone is we have, from a risk management point of view, we have to ensure that inflation doesn't take back off. And that means we're going to have to kind of keep rates higher for longer than we normally would say we would do from a Taylor rule or some policy rule because of a risk management side. It's worse for us to have inflation take back off and then have to start raising rates again. Then to just kind of keep them there until we are fully convinced that inflation comes down. So I think that's really the big difference is just the markets have a very different path for expected inflation 
uh, than we do. Does it make monetary policy tougher in that lower rates are essentially an easing of financial conditions and you're trying to tighten them? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's hard to talk people out of their forecast. You know, if they believe that's what the forecast is and they're going to bet their money, it's very hard for me to get them to change the view. Do you have to respond by making rates even higher than they otherwise would be if the market doesn't respond? Well, we'll kind of see how the data comes in, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, if this loosening conditions makes things looser in the sense that growth takes off, employment doesn't loosen, and inflation starts kind of taking off again, then, yeah, it's going to require us to do a lot more. Are you at all humbled in your certainty about the trajectory of inflation by what happened a year ago in that the Fed was all decided that inflation was going to be transitory and it was going to go away and most of the Fed members ended up being wrong about that? What's the chance that you're wrong again this time? Why should the markets be any more confident in your outlook on inflation? Yeah, everybody that does forecasting should be humble by definition because you're mostly always going to be wrong. But we go do it anyway, right? We know we're going to be wrong, but we have the guts to go out and make our prediction. Uh, 2022 really was, um, it was a humbling experience. I mean, it clearly was. When you sat in April or May of 2021 and you saw this inflation, you said, what's causing it? Every possible explanation was a transitory effect. I mean, the logic of it, it's just the logic just led you to say this can't persist for very long. It's going to unwind. It's going to rattle. The demand's going away. The supply stuff's going to go away and inflation will come right back down. And that story held from April until September of 2021. Inflation was monthly coming down. It's looked transitory. And then October, November, December of 2021, it just exploded. So once that happened, we had to quickly change pace and say, look, this story, this belief, it's just not there. So, you know, it was a mistake. We corrected it. Um, and so that's the thing is we don't really want to make that mistake again. But so what was the mistake? Was the mistake being too, you know, locked into your view or was the mistake that you were simply low in terms of your trajectory on inflation? So I've made these comments before. The mistake in my mind that we made was we bet the farm on the transitory story. And any risk management model, you would have said, what if it doesn't go away? What should you be doing to get ready for that event if it doesn't go away? But when I look at the projections of Fed officials right now, 17 of 19 above 5%, two are at 490 right now. Aren't you betting the farm on, on inflation being too only falling slowly now? Are you doing the same betting the farm just on the other side this time? Yeah, but the beauty is it's a lot easier to go down. Right? If, we, if we're, I tell you, if I'm wrong on this, I am going to be a happy man. Right? If the inflation comes down much more rapidly than I think, that's fantastic. I will have no problem saying I was wrong. Right? Because it's good for the economy. It's not about me being right. It's what I think is good. But again, from the risk management side, I have to protect against that it does, that it stays up and or takes back off. That's what I have to protect against. The markets don't have to protect against Did I that. hear your or read your comments correctly that you think you ought to go a quarter at the next meeting and then a quarter a second time? And would that be the end of it as far as you're concerned? Depends on the data. I, ever since September, I've stopped really kind of giving very long forward guidance and just said whatever the data tells me is what I'm going to do. And but right the next now, quarter you think is pretty much what you're going to do. That sounds like from your speech. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, if inflation starts popping back up again, rate hikes are not going to stop. 
So that brings me to my next question here, which is um, you said you were a happy man. It's like, what does it take to make Governor Waller happy? You made a, a inflation going like that. Well, well, here's the thing. You spoke An in unemployment no, stand right there. You in in Wizard of Oz, Dorothy wants to get back to Kansas, right? <laughs> but this is keep, a first. But they keep moving the goalposts on her, right? They keep making her do new things and more things. You in November <laughs> said that one month's worth of inflation wasn't enough. Exactly. And that was October's inflation. Yep. Then you got November inflation, that's two. Then you got December inflation, that's three. And in all three cases, inflation came down, and that's still not enough. Well, With Dorothy trying to get back to Kansas, you keep moving the goalposts. Well, that's the beauty. By the March meeting, we'll get two more, and then you got five. And that'll give you a much clearer idea. But I just gave you an example in 2021 where we had basically five months of this thing coming down. And then it shot up and exploded in our face. So, so we had five So what's it going to take, Governor Waller? What's it going to take in order to make you feel like enough is enough already? Yeah, like I said, if you see inflation continuing on this path, we know res, uh, we know that shelter cost and uh, owner equivalent rent, those are going to start coming down four, five, six months. So we know that's coming off. If wages start continuing to moderate to where you know wages are going up consistent with productivity growth and inflation, that's a good sign. Um, so all of these things, you know, uh, you know, Chair Powell has pointed out that, you know, services are very heavily uh, labor dependent. So wages are a critical factor for mm-hmm. pass through. Again, if we continue to see wage data kind of softening more consistent as inflation comes down as well, that just makes our job a lot easier. Let me ask you to comment on some of the recent news. There were announcement this morning of. All right, so that is our Steve Leesman interviewing Fed Governor Christopher Waller live at the Council on Foreign Relations. You want to continue watching that on your second screen? You can do so by heading over to CNBC.com where it is streaming live. All right, bank rates, Greg McBride is still with us. Greg, your thoughts maybe on what we just heard or, or maybe didn't hear? Well, I think you know, it's clearly the Fed stuck to that transitory script way too long. They were behind the curve, and we saw the fastest pace of rate increases in 40 years last year because they spent a lot of that time playing catch-up. And, you know, they're reluctant now uh, to hint at any kind of pivot and kind of keeping their options open in case inflation stays stubbornly high because we've been head fakes before. And, of course, you know, he referenced, uh, you know, the August-September 2021 timeframe as being the first of what ended up being, you know, two or three times where we thought inflation had peaked only to see it go higher from there. Yeah, you know, you referenced in our previous segment about people still looking for offers on balance transfers. Do those still exist for for average credit? Not not 780 credit scores, okay? But, you know, whatever, 680. Do they exist? Yeah, absolutely. 680, 700, they're still widely available. Um, we have a list at bankrate.com, but we see 0%. A lot of the issuers are offering one flavor or another. Some of these go as long as 21 months. And so that's really significant, Brian, because that insulates you from however many future rate hikes we end up seeing. And then with that 0%, you can really put the hammer down. You have a long runway to get that debt paid off once and for all. I mean, that's the goal. It gets tougher the higher rates go. But when you insulate yourself from those high rates by getting one of those low rate balance transfers, you can really turbocharge your efforts. That's it. I mean, that, that revolving credit number... With rates going up, 
add that to arms, adjustable rate mortgages, add that to car loans, spectacularly inflationary if you have debt. Greg McBride, Bankrate.com. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you, Brian. All right, on deck. Speaking of arms, home sales declined once again last month, but not as much as some feared. So can the housing market hold up better than some are predicting? We'll talk about it. And rare bipartisanship in Washington, but eh, maybe it's just the booze talking. It's a real story. It involves Elon Moy drinking, apparently. And that's coming up. But as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. J.P. Morgan and Amgen, your biggest losers. American Express, Honeywell, the biggest gainers. The Exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Green on the screen on this Friday afternoon. Markets right now, they're higher. Not overall soaring, but the NASDAQ is up 1.4%. That's a pretty big deal. By the way, a part of that, media stocks. They're on the move. A lot of news in the last 24 hours. Let's get to Julia Borston for a market flash. Julia. A lot of news indeed, and it all started with Netflix. Those shares up uh, nearly 7% on those better-than-expected subscriber additions that the company reported in its earnings. Other media companies are moving in tandem, a sign that the company's Netflix's subscriber growth indicates overall strength in the sector. At least that's what investors are hoping. Take a look at Disney shares. They're up about 3%, as are Warner Brothers Discovery shares. Comcast, CNBC's parent company, those shares up over 1.5%. Paramount Global shares also up about 3%. I also just want to point out Pinterest. It's a rare stock in the space that is struggling today. Um, earlier today, it was in the red. Right now, it's just flat on a downgrade to neutral um, from buy by MKM Partners, citing negative survey results that show advertisers preferencing its rivals for where they're going to be putting those ad dollars. Brian? All right, Julia, thank you then. All right, let's step outside of the world of business, get a CNBC News update with Tyler Mathis. All right, Brian, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, folks. A summit of Western defense leaders has failed to resolve their differences over sending tanks, the latest ones, to Ukraine. Uh, They held more than five hours of discussions at a U.S. military base in Germany. Germany's defense minister says his government has still not made a decision on supplying German-made Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. The Federal Trade Commission wants a judge to hold pharma bro Martin Shkreli in contempt of court. Regulators say the convicted fraudster has started a new drug company violating a ban on Shkreli working in the pharmaceutical industry. A lawyer for Shkreli did not immediately respond when asked for content. 
uh, for comment, excuse me. And in an Australian rainforest, a park ranger has found, look at this thing, look at this, what could be called the world's largest toad. Uh, this cane toad weighs in at six pounds and has been nicknamed Toadzilla. Yes, unfortunately for Toadzilla, cane toads are an invasive species and it was euthanized before it could lay tens of thousands of eggs. Toadzilla's body has been donated to a museum for further research. A six pound, now dead toad, Brian. You can race cane toads. There are bars in Australia, I may or may not have been in one where you do this and you bet on the toad and you smack it and not that you don't hit the toad. You hit behind and they race and you know, they won. I'm, and then you drink whoever loses. Finishes, don't do that. I thought there might be alcohol involved here somewhere. That's it. Yep. I see a CNBC segment ahead. Yep. Cane, Cane Toad Olympics. That's it. With, with, with Rip, Toadzilla. Tyler, yeah, thank you very much. Toadzilla. By the way, don't lick them. Also, apparently they're like poisonous. Like everything. I, I wasn't planning to. No, not you, like a dog or something. <laughs> <laughs> I see you, man. <laughs> Trippin' Tyler Matheson. That's a great segment. All right, fire up the Jets. Because your next guest says F-35s and destroyers could be a great place to put your money. The stock she likes coming up. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Defense was a bright spot last year. Aerospace and Defense ETF, ticker ITA, saw an 8% gain. The S&P 500, of course, fell 19%. But the tide has turned this year. Amid reports, the new GOP-led House considering deep spending cuts across the board as the likes of Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman lower to begin the year. Northrop pacing for its worst month since February 2009. Morgan Stanley says spending cut fears may be overblown. And now is the time to buy some of these names, perhaps at a discount. Let's welcome in the analysts behind that call Christine Lee Wag, Christine, thank you very much for joining us. Why do you think these these defense spending cut fears may be overdone? Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, from our proprietary analysis here at Morgan Stanley, what we found is that we're in the very early innings of generational investments in defense, and that's because we're in a heightened geopolitical environment today that we haven't really seen since post World War II. And when we look at the equipment that the U.S. military has, what we've been reliant on for strategic deterrence are the three legs of the nuclear triad, and they're just aging. So when you look at some of those programs, the Minuteman system has been in operation since 1970. That is now a 52-year-old system, and similar to other capabilities that we've been reliant on, like the B-2 bomber and the Ohio-class ballistic nuclear submarine, all of these are about ranging 30 to 50 years old. And so in order to prepare for heightened geopolitical environment and have our strategic deterrence capability modernized, we're in the early innings of spending to get these things replaced. And when you look at the winners of who's been winning the programs to replace the nuclear triad, we've seen Northrop Grumman. 
Northrop Grumman has won two legs of the nuclear triad with a B-21 bomber and also with ground-based strategic deterrence, which will replace our Minuteman ICBMs. Okay. So these are the opportunities for our defense. Is Northrop your best bet? I mean, it's our top pick. Uh, during the last uh, cycle, during the Reagan administration buildup, Northrop only had one leg of the nuclear triad. And this cycle, they will have two legs of the nuclear triad for growth. Is there what's the difference between these companies? I mean, we talked about it earlier with tech on the show, the difference between Amazon and Alphabet, Northrop, Lockheed, General Dynamics. Explain to our viewers. Yeah, this is they're bigger in ships. They're bigger in missiles. They're bigger in planes, et cetera. When you think of General Dynamics, they build submarines and they also have combat vehicles like Strikers and Abrams. And they also have Gulfstream business jets. So Gulfstream today uh, for General Dynamics is a key driver of the stock. So even though it's a defense contractor, the company trades more in the business jet cycle. Lockheed Martin, their biggest program is the F-35. 30% of total revenue is related to the F-35 program. And even though this has been a driver of growth for the past 20 years, the F-35 um, is maturing. Northrop Grumman, what's unique about the company is that they've won programs for growth in the future. So think of where the F-35 was 15, 20 years ago. Northrop Grumman has won two programs of that size with a B-21 bomber and GBSD. And then also when you look at the portfolio, and this is where the Morgan Stanley proprietary analysis really stands out, we've looked at the fastest growing portions of the defense budget. And we looked at who's got the exposure for their portfolio, and we saw faster growth for mm -hmm. capability space, hypersonics, nuclear triad modernization, and Northrop's portfolio is really set up for that, and they fulfill all the capabilities for these fastest-growing, high-priority okay. programs for the future. Well, if we hear more submarines are going to be built, we'll think, okay, now we know, general dynamics. Really appreciate if you're thinking it. bomber and nuclear triad, that is Northrop Grumman. We have a complete army and navy right there, just between us. Christine, have a great day. Thank you very much. All right, up next, as Congress remains divided, Elon Moy sitting down with the heads of what they call the Bourbon Caucus, Republican Andy Barr, perfect name, and Democrat Morgan McGarvey to discuss what might just be the only issue the two parties can really agree on. And they are hoping history repeats itself, echoing a famous quote from the seventh Speaker of the House, Henry Clay. He famously said that Kentucky bourbon whiskey was uh, the key to lubricating the wheels of government. And we think a bourbon can uh, do that uh, in today's uh, divided Congress as well. Hi, welcome back. When you think of Congress, there's probably a few words that come to your mind. Now, think of ones that start with the letter B. Bills, budgets, brinksmanship. But one group of congressmen are thinking of a different B word, and that is bourbon. Lon Moy sat down with the co-chairs of what they call the Congressional Bourbon Caucus and why they're hoping the brown liquor could lead to more bipartisanship or fistfights. <laughs> well, Brian, that's another word that begins with a B. Bourbon and other American whiskeys are the country's top exported spirit, making up 62% of the $1.6 billion in international sales, according to the Distilled Spirits Council. Now, market share is bouncing back after the EU suspended tariffs on the Kentucky Signature Spirit, and now lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are pushing for permanent relief. In an era of divided government, there is one issue that brings Republicans and Democrats together. Bourbon. 
with the Bourbon Caucus, um, we can be pretty popular because you, know, you go to these caucus meetings, they talk policy. We get to drink our policy. The bipartisan Bourbon Caucus is led by Republican Representative Andy Barr and Democratic Representative Morgan McGarvey. Both hail from Kentucky, of course, where 95 percent of bourbon is distilled. In fact, it's the only spirit recognized by Congress as a distinctive product of the United States. All bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. And we, we think bourbon uh, is, is, of course, the best of all whiskeys. Um, that means that public policy actually matters. Here's proof. During the Trump administration, the Bourbon Caucus pushed to lower the excise tax on spirits. After President Biden took office, the Bourbon Caucus fought to suspend Europe's retaliatory tariffs on Kentucky's finest, sending sales soaring by 23 percent. Now they're trying to prevent those tariffs from snapping back into place next year. Still, this is Washington, and politics is never totally off the table. We have so many Kentucky bourbons here on this table. Which one is your favorite? Can you even answer that question? The one's from my district. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now, of course, Brian, bourbon is not the most urgent issue facing this Congress. There's a debt limit in funding the government, of course. But this is a good reminder that bipartisanship is always worth a shot. Back over to you. I see what you did there. Worth a shot. And this is why I've, I'm going to say something. I hope I'm not going to get in trouble. Um, we're going to miss. This is your last ever appearance. Maybe as, as, a, as a CNBC employee, correct? This is, your, this is it? This is, this is it for me. This is cheers, Brian. Well, because, like the worth a shot is like a perfect <laughs> example of why we're going to miss you. Because you're super talented, super friendly. You got up for Wex at like 3 in the morning. <laughs> Then you're on the right nighttime show. You. <laughs> you're always smiling. Uh, we're going to miss you, Elon. Well, thank you very much, Brian. I'm going to miss you, too, and everyone at CNBC. It's been a really great run. Well, Elon, uh, thank you. And by the way, I'm not done with you yet because I'm, I'm going to New Orleans. A lot of people don't know this, that Elon is, an, she is a, she's a raging, you're not a raging Cajun because that's a college, but you're a Cajun, and you're going to give us some good restaurant and bar tips on our next trip down to New Orleans. We can go to Bourbon Street, Brian. That's it. And that will certainly be, there'll be no partisanship. There'll be party, partying ship. Sorry, that was <laughs> stupid. I'm sorry. Elon, we're going to miss you. Thanks, Brian. Elon Moy, uh, off to a next adventure. No doubt, going to rock it, whatever she decides to do. All right, coming up, December's marked the 11th straight month of declines in existing home sales. Is there any relief on the horizon for buyers? We're going to get a housing health check next. Welcome back. One of the biggest home builder ETFs, XHB, is the ticker reversing course, moving higher today on better than expected existing home sales numbers. Diane Olick joining us now to dig into more on the data, which was not like all doom and gloom. No, I mean, look, Brian, sales did still fall in December, but not nearly as hard as the street was expecting. They dropped one and a half percent month to month. But they were down 34% year over year. Rounding out the year, 2022 saw about 18% fewer sales than red hot 2021. Now, higher mortgage rates and still tight supply are plaguing the market, with inventory at the end of December down about 13% from November. 
But here's a bright spot actually up just over 10% from a year ago. At the current sales pace, that's still just a 2.9-month supply, and a 4- to 6-month supply is considered a balanced market, but we're getting there. Now, even with tight supply, prices are starting to ease. The median price of an existing home sold in December was $366,900, still up 2.3% year-over-year, but we're way off the huge annual gains we were seeing as recently as last summer. It is the smallest price gain since May of 2020. Now, homes are staying on the market longer, on average 26 days. That's up from 19 days the year before and just 14 days last July. All cash sales, though, are rising 28% in December, up from 23% the year before. And that's likely due to higher mortgage rates and a return of investors to the market as prices start to ease. And just one more thing, while sales are down at all price points, they are falling the hardest at the top of the market. Sales of million-dollar-plus homes were down 45% year-over-year, while the other price points were only down in the mid-30s range. So... There's your luxury issues, Brian. Seems to make sense. Diana, stick around. Let's talk more now about all of this and bring in another voice, Danielle Hale, Realtor.com's chief economist. And Diana, of course, still here. Danielle, so this is probably a bad question, but mortgage rates are about 6% on average now, but at least they're staying there. And is is there a positive story to be told in that rates seem to have stopped rising? While six is more painful than four, At least, I imagine, as a buyer, you you know what you're going to get rather than having to deal every day with, like, another higher rate. Yeah, the volatility that we've seen lately in mortgage rates has been on the downside. So that's in buyers' favor, uh, in buyers' favor. So a much better direction for buyers is helping to make the pricing on homes much more affordable for buyers who are taking on a mortgage. But as Diana noted, uh, the uptick in sales was in investors, and those are buyers who are often using cash and so aren't as affected by swings in mortgage rates. What's also interesting is that we saw an uptick in first-time home buyers. It was very slight, but they did see a slight increase in share in December. And so that suggests that, yes, some home buyers are taking advantage of slightly lower mortgage rates. And I think as we move into the new year, a lot of people set resolutions looking forward to make a move in the calendar year. And I think that's that's going to be a big boost um, to home sales for those folks. The fact that we're seeing lower mortgage rates is making homes uh, more affordable for people relative to what they were at the end of the year last year. Yeah, you buy, you buy that argument at all, Diana? I mean, I don't know, because there's this incredible push and pull, and Danielle actually talked about it, and she put out a a release this morning as a reaction to these numbers, this push and pull between buyers and sellers, which is that sellers are afraid to list because they don't want to catch a falling knife, and buyers are afraid to buy for the very same reason. They don't want prices to go down even further and miss out on perhaps a bargain. So, I mean, lower mortgage rates are certainly going to help, and we saw that in the home builder sentiment numbers this week. They saw more buyer traffic in there. But I want to know from Danielle, who jumps first, the buyers or the sellers? back into this market? I I think the buyers are already in the market. They're just waiting for their opportunity. I think in order to see sales pick up, you're going to have to see the sellers come in. Now, the good thing for sellers is that they are sitting on still record levels of home equity. Even though home price growth has slowed, it's still positive. So if I'm going to choose, I would much rather be a seller than a buyer in today's market. But there are plenty of buyers for whom it's the right time to make a home purchase regardless of the economic conditions. They're really just waiting for that affordability to improve. Diana, you and I, I think you and I talked about this the other day. And, you know, if I'm on Realtor.com, I'm not trying to plug Realtor.com, but you're a guest, so I'll plug it. You know, I want to look at the last time the home sold, because you can look at the property history, right? So if I go and I say, okay, 
I'm a buyer. I like these two homes. Wait a minute. This home was last sold in 1994. They've been living there a long time. They probably have it paid off or close to it. This house was sold in 2019. They might be underwater and won't be flexible on price. That, ho- that equity's got to matter a lot on how much they're willing to move, Diana. Right. I mean, it's all about the negotiation, but I do think that buyers now have a lot more negotiating power. They don't have to drop all the contingencies like we were seeing two years ago when you could buy a house, but you couldn't say, oh, I'd like to have a home inspection, please. Now those are back and there is, you know, less competition in the market. And that means that sellers do have to be more flexible. As for the equity issue, I think it really plays much more into the potential sellers, what they're saying about, you know, do I want to give up this mortgage rate and have a higher mortgage rate where I'm paying more into it and then not gaining as much equity as before? Or do I sit on this equity and perhaps take some of it out and redo the house in the way that I want it so they don't have to move? I think that plays into that side of the equation. But hands down, all across the board, we just need more supply. That's it. And we'll have a more supply show, I'm sure, next week. Daniel Hale, Diana Olick, as always, thank you very much. All right. This is cool. Remember we talked about licking cane toads earlier? By the way, don't do that. If your dog does it, take it to the vet. I bring it up because can we show the Power Lunch studio? It's like wild. There's the power cam. Contessa's screaming at Tyler about something. They've got Techapalooza coming up. They're going to talk about the big moves in tech. You know what that is? That's fake conversation, what they're doing right now. They're pretending to talk to each other. Look at the background. It's all good stuff. All right, Laura Martin, a bunch of great guests on the Techapalooza from the Tron set. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 